Hello everybody, uh, Martin Keenan here this time and uh, I have a special guest today, Dr Lorreen Herwalt. Uh, Lorreen is a professor in internal medicine and infectious disease at University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine but she also has a joint appointment in the epidemiology department in the College of Public Health. Now the work we're going to be discussing today comes from a paper published in 2011 in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine which was an intervention to reduce transmission of resistant bacteria in intensive care otherwise known as the STAR ICU study. Now that study looked at the use of feedback and surveillance on the results of surveillance cultures and the implementation of extra barrier precautions. And possibly surprisingly, the results of this study indicated that the identification of colonised patients and expanding the use of barrier precautions were not likely to be broadly effective. But today we're going to be focusing on some more recent work on hand hygiene. Um, so welcome, Laureen. And could you tell me something about the study and all these new pieces of work have been based on, please? I'm really excited that the papers are all coming out. Uh, two, two are published and, and one is to come. So this work originated a number of years ago um, when Dr. Charlie Huskins, who was the principal investigator of the STAR ICU study, and I were talking outside during lunch at ICPIC. And we were talking about the study and my hospital had been involved in the STAR ICU study. And I knew we collected a huge amount of information about the tasks that healthcare workers were doing if and when they did hand hygiene and what they were doing hand hygiene with. But I also knew that in the NEJM paper that came out eventually on the STAR ICU study that there was only about one or two or maybe at most three sentences on the hand hygiene data in the entire paper. And so I was asking Charlie about it because it seemed to me that there was a lot of data in there where we could actually look at the tasks people were doing and when they did hand hygiene and what direction they were moving in, you know, because in, in, hand, in infection prevention, we'd like to teach people to move from clean tasks to dirty tasks. But given some observations that I had students do uh, when I was teaching my hospital epidemiology class, I was beginning to wonder whether people really understood that practice. Using students is a good idea because people don't really notice them, do they? Right. And there was actually one event that really stuck in my mind where a healthcare worker went into an ICU room with gloves, discovered that the patient was incontinent of stool. So she cleaned up the stool, but then left on that pair of gloves and proceeded to touch, I think, the art line, the ventilator, the IV lines, and do the patient care without taking off those gloves and doing hand hygiene. And that really made me start thinking about <laughs> whether our Healthcare workers really understood in terms of moving from clean to dirty. And if you have a dirty task that interrupts your plan, do they then take off the gloves, do hand hygiene and start again? Or So those kinds of things were I was thinking about. And as I was talking with Charlie, they hadn't planned to do anything more with the infection prevention data, but he was really happy to share or the, the hand hygiene data and the task data. But he was very happy to share the data turned out to be very rich data, didn't it? Yes. And, you know, I actually had the data for a number of years and I kept looking for a grad student or someone with real statistical uh, skill who would be able to handle it. And it turned out that the even creating the data set that we needed from the data that we had was a lot of work and quite tricky, just putting it together. But then creating the definitions 
and doing the statistical analysis was really very complicated. So I began to understand more why people may not have um, <laughs> done such a study before, because it, on the surface, it seems fairly simple. But as we sort of each layer we went through, we realized more and more how complicated it was. But I finally got a phenomenal grad student in epidemiology who really probably could have gotten a biostat PhD. He was very good quantitatively and worked with one of our biostatisticians to create the data set and then do the analyses. So that's, um, that's kind of the origin of, of the, the study. I was interested in the ranking of tasks by your infection preventionist. How did that go? Is there a lot of agreement or disagreement? Because it seems very logical, but uh, often people don't always agree. So, um, you know, on one hand, the, the data set was very rich. We had, I think, 17 different ICUs from multiple hospitals across the U.S. So it was multi-center, um, the STAR ICU study. And we also had a lot of detail in terms of what they had collected. And so the initial definitions in terms of the task were set up by the STAR ICU study. So we did not do that. And, and things like a sterile procedure and things like, like um, cleaning up contamination, sure. those, are, those are pretty straightforward. Yeah. Some of the others, you know, that we would have preferred not to have had things lumped. So we lost some data just by the way the STAR ICU study had lumped them. Um, I've, at least uh, in our infection prevention group, when we took it to the infection preventionist and said, okay, look at the way these tasks have been defined. How would you organize them in terms of risk to the healthcare worker of contaminating his or her hands or risk to the patient if the healthcare worker didn't do hand hygiene? And we got consensus on that pretty quickly in terms of what people thought. It's obviously not as clean as if we had collected the data for this particular purpose. And, you know, we, if we were doing it prospective fashion for this purpose, you know, we would have defined things a little differently. But I think with the massive amount of data that we had, you know, it, it cost us something, but but I don't think it invalidates the results. No, you had a massive data set, didn't you? So that's really helpful. Yeah. Let's go on to discuss the results then, because you, know, you, you had the physicians and the other healthcare workers who were more likely to move from dirtier to cleaner tasks. I was interested in knowing what the other healthcare workers might be, but might they be physiotherapists or yeah. that, that sort of staff group? Yes. I mean, they could be occupational therapists, physical therapists, respiratory therapists. Um, uh, who else would go? Because um, they're twice as likely yes. to move from dirty to clean. So is that education, do you think, or sure. motivation, or where are we going with that uh, one? That's, I mean, that's a good question. You know, we did not interview people. Some of it certainly may be education. At times, you would think that some of these, those people who aren't doing care as much um, or as much direct care, that they might be more likely in some ways. Um but it, it could just be that they you know, weren't educated to think about that. I was wondering if they were actually going with a clean task in mind and then accidentally yes. got a dirty sure. task, which they wouldn't normally do, and so therefore they didn't think about it. Well, I think most of them probably wouldn't be doing as many of the dirty tasks. I think that's probably going to be more true of nurses and 
And mm -hmm. like the, the example that I gave you um, that had been sort of on my mind and troubling me for quite some time, I think that can be probably particularly true for nurses. They go in thinking that they're going to uh, give an IV med or they're going to change the dressing on, on the central venous catheter and then they find out that the patient's been incontinent or the patient needs to be suctioned. And then, uh, you know, there was a, a nice study, I'm blanking right now on the authors that, well, actually th this was our Stefan Arbard. So it was a group in Geneva showed that um, if nurses were interrupted while doing tasks, they were less likely to do hand hygiene. So I think that the idea that people maybe go in with one plan and good intentions, but they get uh, interrupted and distracted certainly can affect hand hygiene. I'm, I wonder if it's priorities change, but they don't consciously think of the effect of that priority change. I, I think that that, I mean, I think that's something we need to examine further, but I think mm. uh, that could be the case. I mean, there there is one pilot study that looked at whether nurses who made, you know, made a care plan ahead of time. I, uh, I can't remember exactly what they called it, but so they, they did planning ahead of time about what tasks they were going to do and what they needed to do to accomplish that task. And they were somewhat more likely to do hand hygiene when they included the hand hygiene in their care planning. So having thought about it intentionally ahead of time, that might help you carry through better. Yeah, I was wondering a bit because nurses tend to care for patients. So I wonder if they go in with the idea of doing the IV, which is a task, and then they see the patient who's been unconfident, therefore they're uncomfortable, therefore I need to make this person comfortable, overrides the, the need. Because I did a small piece of work a few years ago now looking at why nurses put catheters in, and actually it was primarily motivated by the need to help the patient. So I'm wondering if dealing with the dirty task brings it in, in a, I need to help this person now before I go and do the line, and they're not quite gauging the risk to the patient and recognizing in the example that you gave so beautifully that, that actually that hugely increased the risk to the person. I think that that would be a great thing to examine more carefully. The thing is, I, you know, if I would have asked that nurse outside of that clinical situation, would you ever clean up stool and then use the same pair of gloves to handle the art line, the IV, the ventilator and every, every device in that room? the nurse would have, I think, been really insulted. Undoubtedly, yeah. I think um, I, I think surveying people probably is not going to give us the right information unless we ask people like right after they do it. You know, if we observe them and then say, what happened there? And try to do it in a non-judgmental way. That's the difficult bit though, isn't it? Because people are automatically going to assume that you're criticizing them because right. they will immediately see it and think, actually, I did that wrong. So they're going to go straight into defensive mode. So I'm not, I think that would be a really pretty difficult study to try to Very do difficult. somebody with more understanding of psychology and motivation probably than I. Yeah, that is so hard. So what recommendations could you come from at, from this piece of work then? Because they will have been educated. So are they, are they not getting refreshers on the degree of risk or something like that, do you think? Well, I think... There were a couple of observations from the study. One is they tended to move from dirtier to cleaner. Now that can be okay if you do hand hygiene. Sure. So I think part of it is helping people realize 
think about, you know, really the, the order in which they're going to move. And maybe they go in with one plan and they become dis- inter- interrupted. Then they have to sort of go back and think about it again. Okay, I've got to sort of re- restart this. Um, the other thing is, is that when they move from dirtier to cleaner, they were less likely to do hand hygiene than when they moved from cleaner to dirtier. So then it was a du- sort of a double whammy. So I think some education around if you move from cleaner to dirtier, there are probably fewer hand hygiene opportunities. So you could be more efficient. Mm. Yeah. So you hit, you know, with the five moments, you wouldn't have to do hand hygiene as often. The other thing is to get people to think about this idea of if what you went in to do has been interrupted because you see there's something you, you've got to address by cleaning up stool or suctioning the patient, then resetting and realizing you got to take off your gloves, you need to do hand hygiene. It's either resetting or actually saying to people, actually, if you carry on to give the IV, that's maybe going to take you 30 seconds or a minute, whereas resetting is going to take you a lot longer. And the patient has possibly been laying in the incontinence of stool for a little while. So for them, that 30 seconds probably won't make that much difference. But doing it the other way really could. It could. So I think part of it may be getting people to think more clearly about the order in which they do things in terms of uh, and also the, the risk to the patient. I, the paper that's coming out um, that's just been accepted by Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology looks at the workload. And I mean, as you know, Andreas Bidmer and Andreas Voss wrote the nice modeling paper years ago showing you know, how many hours you would actually need in an ICU to do hand hygiene for 100% compliant. <laughs> and and the, the uh, DDA and, and Stefan um, Arbart's group in, in Geneva has also looked at the effective workload. And we sort of, um, you know, took that little more one step further with the size of the data set that we had. And we were able to really quantify a, a point at which, um, at least at the point when, when the STAR ICU study was done, that healthcare workers really couldn't accommodate more hand hygiene opportunities. And that was at 30 hand hygiene opportunities an hour. And that's using alcohol, isn't it, at the point of care rather than going to the sink? Uh, yes, for the most part, uh, during the time when we did the STAR ICU study, although people could still do, you know, hand washing. Um, yeah. The other thing that we found is that as the number of hand hygiene opportunities increased, likely the complexity of the care was increasing because the number of different kinds of healthcare workers involved in that episode of care increased, suggesting that, you know, with more different groups involved in this episode, that something more was going on and it was more complex care. So I think those are a couple of things to be thinking about. One is then staffing levels, which obviously is difficult. And with the pandemic, probably has been made even more difficult, making sure that you're staffed adequately, and then also recognizing, you know, the the limit at which people can do hand hygiene. And the first paper that we had published based on this study was published in CID. And that looked at whether healthcare workers were more likely to do hand hygiene after a dirty task or before a critical task critical task you know, or a clean task. So a critical task, doing something with a sterile device. Mm-hmm. And what we found is across the board, regardless of what task it was, people were 
more likely to do hand hygiene after a task rather than before it. Right. Um, and so. And that's with regardless of gloves, is it? Regardless of gloves, and you know, and so um, somehow one of the things we thought about with that is is the is completing a task sort of a marker for people. Okay. Oh, so I'm I'm finished. So now I do hand hygiene. And then what, what kind of marker can we have for people at the start of a clean or critical uh, test that would help them remember, I've got to do hand hygiene here. And um, so that was an interesting observation to us. And one of the things, you know, we've been thinking based on our findings and the results of, you know, multiple other studies, including the ones by Bidmer and Pipe and, and others, that have shown that people can't or don't do hand hygiene at all opportunities is, can we begin to um, help identify these critical tasks where you absolutely, absolutely have to do hand hygiene before you do them? Yeah. And really educate people on, um, you know, the risk to the patient, you know, what is it great if you can do hand hygiene at all five moments? Yeah. Because if you're just touching the environment, we know from studies that you can contaminate your hands. However, if I had to choose between a healthcare worker touching me with unclean hands, just touching my, you know, moving from the environment to my skin, that's one thing. But if they're going to be touching my central line, yeah, I'll, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, they're I viewing would, it I, as an episode of care, aren't they, rather than a series of tasks that actually should have an interruption between each. Right, and I think. I think we need to help help people think about the entire sequence of care. I mean, there are multiple tasks in there, and mm. some of them some of them are more likely to contaminate your hands uh, or your gloves. Some of them are more likely to be a risk to the patient. And helping people understand those differences, and you know, when is it then really critical? I mean, every opportunity, yeah, you know, just touching the bed rails. You, you know, you might have a five or ten percent chance of contaminating your hands with the pathogen. On the other hand, we know, you know, if you touch stool or butum and things like that, you probably have a much higher. Um, okay, so I'm wondering if that's because we teach infection prevention related to each task rather than talking about a sequence. You know, actually teaching a sequence of care and giving that as an example. Right, and actually, actually, um, maybe in simulations simulating a whole episode of care. That's really where we decided to focus on this particular, these particular studies with the STAR ICU data. And, you know, I think I've mentioned some of the limitations to the study already. I would, I think, I hope that maybe this encourages some people to, to actually look at this prospectively. So you could know what the healthcare worker did before they entered the room, whether or not he or she did hand hygiene and then know everything they touched in the room mm. and when and or they did hand hygiene uh, or not. Um, and then what they did when they did, you know, did they do hand hygiene when they left the room and what did they do after that? Yeah. You know, are they, are they immediately going to the next patient room? And those were questions we couldn't address with the way the star ICU data uh, were collected and summarized. 
It's like any good piece of research, though. It opens, it leaves you with more questions than answers sometimes, and and opportunities to actually further refine. But your your data set is very valid, I think, and the points are all really logical. And and I do wonder whether we should think about the way we teach people and talk about a sequence again. I really like the simulation idea because I've often thought it'd be really good if you could have somebody who's doing the observation of a simulation episode, if they could fast forward an infection moment if you like so somebody does not decontaminate their hands when they're actually accessing an iv line and the instead of the patient waiting 48 hours to get their sepsis they start triggering immediately which might make people think do you know what i've just done that wrong because there's no connection between poor practice and the event is there yeah i think i think that's a really good point and i've never thought about doing um a simulation that way but the patient could crash right yeah absolutely and they would then have to think what have we just done and if you could if you could actually use some video reflexive work you could actually show the moment of you handled the stool then you went to the art line instead of as i say you know i used to say to people if you if you gave somebody norovirus and they immediately vomited on your feet you maybe would think i wouldn't do that again but because it's 24 hours later there's no connection between poor practice and and the event so i'd I'd love to see yeah. that in a simulation suite. I mean, it is interesting. We just finished um, and are working on the publication of um, some simulation studies about healthcare worker doffing uh, personal protective equipment. And it, you know, it's something that people do every day for the most, you know, who, who are out in clinical units is, is put on gowns and gloves and masks. And Certainly do at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. It, become even more relevant than when we started the study. Um, it, it actually came, came out of some of the, you know, what happened during the Ebola crisis. Right. And then, then in the, you know, then um, coronavirus uh, came. But it, it is very interesting that people in that situation where they know they're being observed, they realize quickly when they've made a mistake. And quite a number of them would say, uh-huh. I really blew it on that one i know that i did so i think that i think there is um, a lot to being doing it in a situation where people are being watched and they know it and they're getting formative feedback and in fact i think that helps them give themselves their own formative feedback there was a paper last year from david weber's group where they actually um used a peer support instead of infection preventionists standing there in critical care watching And, you know, and therefore an outsider. They actually used somebody with critical care experience who was seen as a peer who would stand there and observe practice and give feedback and gentle nudging. And the I critical care staff would take that much better than they would do from an infection preventionist. And I thought that was an interesting approach. Yeah, that does sound good. But it, it was interesting to me to watch the healthcare workers sort of be their own critics because in that yeah. situation, yeah. they were they were being more aware of what they were doing and think and not completely going on autopilot yeah i think that's right because if you tell somebody they've got a problem the first thing they're going to do is not believe they've got a problem whereas if they can be led to it so they recognize the problem themselves then they're more likely to think how do i fix it myself whereas if they don't think anything's broken what why are they not, why are they going to fix it well in these instances we hadn't even said to the people well you you made a mistake here we just asked them what they thought mm. and they actually brought it up themselves. And sometimes they would say, um, I'm not sure why I did that. I don't do that normally. 
Um, and sometimes they would say, well, that's, you know, I do this all the time, but, um, you know, I guess I didn't really think about it or. Yeah. I mean, generally I find healthcare workers, they, they want to do a good job. They don't set out to damage people. And, and if you can nudge them towards reflecting on practice, I think that's yeah. always much more powerful than giving them bad news that, yeah. about something being terrible. I do think the workload issue is a big one. I think mm. it's probably been exacerbated by the, by COVID. And, uh, you know, with the, the number, I mean, we're basically always on full. And yeah. time I log into to, um, our electronic medical record, it's either the emergency department, the hospital, or both are nearly full. You know, I get, I get this message. So, you know, that means our staff are, you know, overloaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have the same in the UK. We're full generally anyway, but we are over full now because we actually had to almost double the number of ICU beds, for example, in London, which is why we built the temporary hospital. But um, actually what we've ended up with is and the number of critical care nurses, of course, you cannot knit them overnight. So you end up with one critical care nurse, maybe looking after four critical care patients with somebody far less experienced at the bedside. And then with the best one in the world, things aren't going to go as well as normal. And we've seen an increase in some infections during this period from you know, other healthcare associated infections. So I'm sure the workload is, has got a lot worse since the, your original study, that's for sure. Well, Lorraine, thank you very much. It's been absolutely fascinating. Plenty to think about. Lots more studies to do. Not by me, I suspect. <laughs> I suspect. But it's been fascinating talking to you. I really want to thank you for giving up your time to have this discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. And we hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget, all the links to the papers we've discussed will be in the description. 